welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, February 2nd, we are studying 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1-14. to In today's text, St. Paul wraps up his letter to the Corinthians with final warnings and encouragements in the Christian faith. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Rev. Dr. Ryan Teets. Dr. Teeth serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Oh, once again, it is super fun to be back, especially a chance to play in Pauline studies, which is yes. not my normal turf. So I'm, I'm excited That's to be That's right. They to let you out of the text. Old Testament for a little while, and we get to, to read the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. So talk to us a little bit about this epistle, what we need to know. I mean, we're reading, we're reading the last chapter today, so the, the full context of the letter is there. Uh, what should we know as we prepare to look at this section? Yeah, and this may be just basic, and perhaps your hearers who spend a lot more time in Pauline studies than I do, take it for granted, is I always forget how accessible and how well we get to know Paul. My world, as most of the hearers know, I, I spend time in the major prophets. Uh, I know a little bit about Isaiah. I can't say I ever get to know him too well in the book. But to be dealing with a guy who is a, who we actually have a lot more access to, and the other thing that really struck me, and again, I haven't touched, it's, it's been a while, it's been a minute since I've been in Pauline studies, is that uh, I'm used to uh, talking about there being uh, rhetoric in the Old Testament. Uh, the trick is in the rhetoric in the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's in that category of I know it's there, but exactly how to describe it gets really hard. Here, uh, Paul's rhetorical strategies are extremely familiar for us and so much more accessible than what I'm used to dealing with. You mentioned how we really get to know the Apostle Paul through his epistles, and I think that's particularly true, having now read all of 2 Corinthians up through this point. Uh, one of our previous guests, Dr. Adam Kuntz, suggested that we should think about 2 Corinthians as a, a pastoral epistle, just written to the congregation rather than to the, the pastor like First and Second Timothy and Titus are. Just thinking about the way you get to know St. Paul in this epistle and his epistles, especially thinking about him as a pastor to this congregation, and knowing that you're the dean of students and you, you teach at a, a seminary and forming students for the ministry, talk a little bit about that, the importance of that, that a, a pastor lets his people get to know him and, and that aspect of the pastoral ministry. Yeah, and this is where Paul is so transparent. I mean, we have the classic text that we that I missed out on the fun with the thorn in the flesh in chapter twelve, where he this is uh, Paul is a guy with no ego, and it's which is always amusing considering it's Saint Paul for crying out loud. If anybody can have an ego, it's it's Paul. He's uh, a genius, major, oh, and and all of the other great things we can say about him, but he really is somebody who is very transparent with his weakness and transparent with his struggles. And what I appreciate about here in 2 Corinthians is that we can actually hear in his weakness his just deep abiding uh, love and concern of his people. 
and you can just hear how his heart is. Oh, and this internal tension. We will get we'll get this in Second Corinthians thirteen. At times, he's almost going back and forth. You're like, okay, Paul, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, uh, uh, happy, not so happy. And the tension is that he is so longing for this relationship that it's absolutely breaking his heart. He doesn't want to have that, the the infamous, the harsh visit that we have these uh, rumblings about. He wants to avoid that, but he loves them deeply and can just, Oh, and is willing to sacrifice himself mm. on so behalf. Talk of about people. how that that comes out in the pastoral ministry today. How how that's important still for pastors and congregations. Yeah, I mean, this is something I talk about with my students quite a bit. Uh, I have to say, the uh, great chapters Henry Nowen's uh, "The Wounded Healer" of uh, so what chapter three or cha- uh, chapter four? I always forget. It's the one chapter everybody reads in the book. Nobody ever reads anything else, which is probably just as well in that book is that uh, we as pastors are as broken as our people. Uh, we, come, we come to our people with our own brokenness, uh, uh, dealing with crises, dealing with the traumas that we get to deal with as pastors. And my world, Dean of Students, which is, Dean of Students is uh, as close to being a pastor at the seminary as you will, only with the uh, less than great benefit of the uh, getting an email from my administrative assistant, which is the email no student wants to get. If you ever get an email from my uh, administrative assistant, that is the uh, that would be the uh, dean of students equivalent of church discipline, shall we say? As in, uh, yeah, you you don't want to get that. But this, but the idea of us being weak people who are as weak and broken as our hearers, and being able to walk alongside them, and as we walk alongside them, uh, being able to present the hope of the gospel. Yeah, and I think as a as a pastor, then. That's really important that that our people see that, because then, as Paul has made plain several times within this epistle, both pastor and people together learn that our sufficiency is not from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. So this that transparent nature of Paul and and the ability of a pastor to be to be transparent to let his people know that he too is a sinner helps both him and the congregation recall who the Savior is, and it's not the pastor, but it is Christ. Oh, exactly. Uh, it, it, uh, there is a danger in the pastoral ministry of making it about ourselves, the danger of ego. Because let me tell you, it feels great when people love your sermons. And please, love our sermons. We're, we're a fan of that. Don't get me wrong, please. And please compliment your pastors on sermons. We do need to hear that. But there is the danger, though, of suddenly turning into a bit of a charismatic ruler and 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 forgetting that ultimately it's not about your ego, about your your genius. Instead, it's about the message that you're simply a vessel, yeah. that you're a vessel so then, that I mean, Yeah, for and sure. That's and that's, I mean, that's where, you know, St. Paul in the previous chapter, he's boasting in his weaknesses and calamities and hardships, again, so that not only he would remember that when he's weak, he's strong, or the Lord is is strong, but also for his, his people as well. Now, looking forward into this chapter uh, 13, Dr. Teets, what are some of the things we need to be paying attention to as we, we look into it here? Oh, this is where Paul's rhetoric is genius and accessible. Uh, I can't tell you what a lot of the prophets are trying to do. I can tell you what Paul is doing here. This is his, uh, oh, he has one chapter left. Not that he's writing in terms of chapters, of course. But he's getting, he's wrapping things up. So this is his, uh, to use a military analogy, his mopping up operation. He's going to clean house and make sure he secure, oh, make sure he wins over his hearers. And by doing this, uh, he 
ends up th- going from being on the defensive for most of the letter to actually now going on the offensive. And, uh, and it's really genius right, what well, he does here. Go ahead. Because and and it's and it's not and it's all about his goal of yes. wanting reconciliation, but he's gonna yeah he's been fighting these anonymous hearers now for how many chapters, uh, they've been in the background. We've been trying to figure out half this conversation that we don't have access to, which is the one of the fun things, but also some of the, one of the more uh, shall we say uh, frustrating things about the Pauline epistles. Like okay, I know there's a conversation here. I'm hearing yeah, one half of the right. phone yeah, conversation. Yeah, the the so-called super apostles um, have yeah. been in the background for a couple of chapters now. That's that's not the mascot of yeah. of the basketball team there at Fort Wayne, is it? The su- are you guys the super apostles? <laughs> Given how consistently uh we get beat by St. Louis, it better not be the case. Uh, which, by the way, uh, just for any of the, yeah, which as a St. Louis grad who uh, teaches at Fort Wayne, uh, every time the basketball game happens, I can't help say I miss being a St. Louis student. <laughs> it was a lot more fun. Uh, you, Fort, Fort Wayne, they're the Kingsmen, right? And the uh, St. Louis are the preachers. So we're, we're not building, we're uh, yeah. not making super apostles here at yeah, the, the, the seminaries of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Uh, it, given how old our students are at times, I'm just hoping nobody breaks a hip. <laughs> Some basketball is a good time. It's a good time. All right, yeah, let's take a look really at is. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. Here's the text. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That is our text for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. So Dr. Teets, as our section begins today, we have Paul mentioning the third time that he's coming to visit and you get a little bit of information there about the previous visit. This is something that's kind of throughout both of the Corinthian epistles is trying to establish a timeline. It seems a little bit, there's maybe a little bit more debate when it comes to this epistle. Uh, just give us some, some brief outlines here. Uh, keep As we need to know any historical background of what visit we're on, when this happened, but especially how this plays into what he's writing here and the rhetoric that you were describing. Yeah, I mean, this is where Second Corinthians just becomes extremely difficult, trying to reconstruct what's going on. And when it comes to any sort of reconstruction, I'm always a little guarded on, on not wanting to say too much because 
well, we have the text in front of us. That's ultimately what we have is that there seems to be a, a visit that's gone badly. And now he's hoping to set up a visit that will go well. How exactly? And this is where you start reading scholars on the timeline. And uh, there's about the only consensus is there's no consensus over exactly right. what the order of things yeah. are. So, so rather than dive into that sort of hypothetical right. reconstruction, it's uh, let's right. let's let's so, go with what we know. Uh, a visit, a visit, right. a visit's gone bad. That's what's right. the next okay, visit so to go well? And it's going to be the third one. Now he brings up this matter of of charges being established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's some Old Testament for you, Doctor Teets. Yeah, the uh, technical term for what Paul just did here is "ouch." Uh, he has just made a very vicious. Uh, argument because uh, what he's now done is he's actually shifted the burden of proof to his opponents so for most of this epistle he's been the one stuck with burden of proof uh, this, this the curse of having a speech and debate background one of the great goals when you want to win an argument is to not have the burden of proof life's a lot easier when you don't have the burden of proof he's been on the defensive this whole time okay he has to prove against the the charges of you are so bold when you're absent and you're absolute, absolute coward when you're present and all these other charges that have been swirling around. Instead, now he says, look, uh, I'm calling the witnesses and you need to prove yourself. So now it's these uh, super apostles who've been the, uh, what, the, the opponents in the background. Now he quotes Deuteronomy at them. And not only does he quote Deuteronomy, uh, this is a, oh, how Deuteronomy deals with one establishing truth, but also dealing with hostile witnesses. So he's throwing them on right. the defense. So the, those who, that he said he's warned before that had sinned, is, are, is that talking about the super apostles then? Uh, super apostles, this could also go back to chapter 12. Uh, the issue of unrepentant sexual sin is so much in the background mm-hmm. of this. and Which, by the way, is why Cor- the Corinthian correspondence is probably the most relevant to us, um, this is more of a. This is actually a First Corinthians commentary. Uh, Thistleton, probably one of the best First Corinthians comment, one of the best commentaries I own. It's First Corinthians. He says that if Paul were to awake in the twenty first century, he would find it very familiar to Corinth. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I, it has been very uh, going through both of these epistles now, one after the other, has been very, as you said, applicable to the the life that we live right now in the church and some of the the issues that we face and and getting to hear that word of God that we still need to hear in the 21st century, like almost like Paul could have written it straight to us. Yeah. And then here when he's putting his here, putting the uh, opponents on the defensive, you, there's a bit of a reluctance here. You can almost hear throughout this of, look, I don't know. And you also get into later where I don't want to use my authority. And he's like, I really don't want to have to deal with this mess. But I better make sure I can deal with this. Oh, I'm going to deal with it right now. These, yeah, those who uh, have said Okay, so before. talk a little bit about what he, what he's saying there in verses 2 and then into 3. Those who had sinned before, he warned them in the second visit. Now he's, he's not going to spare them this time. And then he starts talking about this proof that Christ is speaking in me. Keep moving us forward into Paul's argument here. Yeah, so likely these are the opponents who are engaged in some sort of uh, unrepentant sexual sin. And the question is always, this has been the issue throughout this entire epistle, is uh, who is the credible witness? Who is the credible apostle? 
Hence that I, you can almost go air quotes, but that would that doesn't That's work right. too well on an audio broadcast. These uh, the great so-called super apostles. Well, let me show you how great I am. And instead, the issue becomes, what does authority look like? And you can hear I really like it at the love it at the end of uh, verse two. Uh, yeah, if I come again, I will not spare them. So please, please let's clean this mess up before I come back. He doesn't want another catastrophe. This is Paul who is fully capable of being a of oh, use of the law, fully capable of exhortation, cleaning up messes. But he's like, oh, please, please, let's not make this the case. Yeah, and I mean, like, there again, you do see pa- Paul's pastoral heart that he desires to visit this beloved congregation of his, and he desires that visit to be a joyful one rather than one in which he he's not afraid to do what he needs to do to lead them to repentance and to proclaim the law in its sternness to do that. But he would much rather have that visit be one in which they rejoice together in the gospel fully, that, that the repentance would happen just on the results of this letter being the word of God to them rather than him having to come and do that in person. Kind of loud. Paul's a pastor. Uh, as uh, I... Any, anybody who enjoys the the church discipline stuff or the you know telling somebody they're wrong fighting those battles uh that's at least that's never been my style uh you'd much rather not have those conflicts when they happen we 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 do have them and we have, we need to deal with them but man you can hear how Paul really doesn't want to have the conflict here because this is the church he founded for crying out loud. These are his people. He yeah. knows them. He cares yeah. about I, I mean, them. I think in terms of the for the pastoral ministry today, like this is a, a very good reason to, to listen to your pastor's sermon and take it to heart as it applies to you. Now, not every example that the pastor is going to mention in his sermon is necessarily going to apply to you, as, as say, perfectly as Paul is applying the gospel or the law and the gospel to the Corinthians at this point. But the, the more that we take our pastor's sermons to heart in repentance— then the more that those pastoral visits that happen over the course of the week can be those of, of joy rather than ones where you have to, like, oh boy, here comes my pastor. I don't really want to talk to him right now. I think that's part of the importance of, of receiving that pastoral care within the worship service so that the pastoral care during the week can, you know, as needed, the law can be there, but it can be much more focused in the, the gospel and, and rejoicing in how now do I live in, in this Christian life. Yeah, and I mean, at least the reality of ministry is most of what we do is we are proclaiming hope because we're getting called to those very sacred, broken moments of people. Uh, one of the one of the things I actually do miss about full time pastoral ministry is that uh, we as pastors we get to go, we get invited to so many different sacred spaces. We're, we're there when people are dying for crying out loud, which. Uh, may in a death dying culture may sound a bit on the morbid side, but it is absolutely to be there for that sacred space with the hope. I mean, that's that's what that's what at least gets me yeah, up in the morning. Yeah, what a what a wonderful privilege for pastors to be able to do that. Now, as Paul continues, then he, he's talking again about how he wants to have this third visit, not be this this case, but if it needed, he will. He talks then in verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, and then begins to speak about the way that that Christ works. Uh, Take us into that next section. Yeah, so the charge he's been up against, there have been all kinds of charges by these so-called super apostles. Uh, One of them is that he's weak spiritually. 
and the, okay, wow, we're the super apostles. We're the ones who know things. And instead, oh, we got this guy who, well, yeah, this absolute coward when he's present. He's has, he has no problem blasting you when absent. But this idea of what does authority look like? And uh, Paul is incredibly countercultural here. Say more about that. How, how is he countercultural here? Oh, uh, because ultimately power is demonstrated in Christ on the cross. Uh, pow- uh, power is made, oh, this yeah. has been the thorn in the flesh, which what I, I'm sh- I, I, can, I can imagine the uh, person who discussed that was able to resolve what the uh, thorn we in the flesh We left it an was. open question. Uh, nope. Okay, uh, which right. is the only thing you ever could on that. Uh, yeah, is it leprosy or whatever? I mean, there are all kinds of fanciful things and who knows what. Uh, but the idea of weakness mean weakness is your strength because it makes you absolutely dependent upon your savior. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, so this, I mean, this is a theme that we've seen throughout the Corinthian correspondence going all the way back to the first chapter of the first epistle that it is Christ crucified, which looks like weakness to men, but it is actually the power of God to save. Now within this epistle, the first chapter where he, he talked about receiving the sentence of death, but that helped them to rely all the more on the God who raises the dead. So that, this this matter of Paul's weakness among the Corinthians, again, is is not some sort of a proof that he's illegitimate, uh, but rather goes to show that he is following after Christ, the one who suffered in his place. He's following in those sufferings, and one day we'll follow in the the resurrection. And again, we, you know, he's talked about this letters of recommendation. All all these things are really coming coming to a, a climax here in this conclusion of the epistle. Yeah, and. And this is where it's always funny, though. Uh, Paul is a little I- ironic when it comes to weakness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's. Oh, yeah. I. I. Yeah. My. My weakness. I lack wisdom. Uh, this is also Paul, who, while talking about his weakness, is incredibly skilled rhetorician. He's a skilled pastor, so it's it's not an excuse to. Uh, That's right. To do sloppy work. Uh, the, the 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 seminary professor just had to say that I, I couldn't resist, but there is this element of. Okay, yeah. As as long as everything I do is in service uh, to Christ and not in service to myself, and that's where this notion of weakness—oh man! Uh, if anybody does well with it in our audience, uh, more power to you. I have yet to figure this one out myself. Is that being forced into a state of dependence is what it means to truly be a child yeah, of God? That's right. I mean, and that's you know Jesus in the Gospels. Whoever wants to enter the kingdom of God must do so as a little child, as one who is entirely dependent upon Christ for all things, one who who has nothing and receives everything from Christ. And that's the, the weakness that Paul has. That's the, the weakness that he's encouraging the Corinthians toward, is to, to simply be these little children who must receive all things from the Lord alone. Oh, yeah, and now this gets into kind of moving yeah. a little bit more towards four. So we get the, oh, Paul says, he's like, for he was crucified in weakness. Uh, so we have the, the scandal of the cross. Um, this and it, It's, it, okay, it is cliched, but well, like some cliches, because it's it's re- really true. Uh, the, the cross is not how we, anybody would have thought it would have, would have thought the Messiah would have ended up. Okay, this oh, I, okay, gratuitous Isaiah reference. There's it's why Isaiah 53, which describes the suffering servant, 
even Isaiah, as he writes that, his syntax is pretty jumbled because even Isaiah is scribbling it down there because he can't quite conceive of what this would even be writing, what, 700 years beforehand. So there is this element of, okay, the cross doesn't make sense. Uh, it wasn't supposed to end this way. But because of the cross, there's forgiveness. And the problem with his hearers is because they refuse to repent, they're missing out on this forgiveness. So talk more about verse 4 then. He was crucified in that weakness, but now lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Talk about that back and forth between weakness and power there. Yeah, and uh, the... uh, Okay, I'm 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 on the brink of entering into one of those great uh, Greek verbal debates. Okay, I'll I'll go I'll go with uh, okay I'm going to go with aspect, uh, and hearers can complain later. Uh, the aspect of the first verb crucified is an aorist. Uh, so so we have this nice little oh uh, point in action. It's done. So he moves from crucified in the past with the results is that when we have uh, lives is in the present aspect here, present tense. See, look, I hedged my bets. Uh, for those, that's a, this is a heck of a lot of inside baseball. Uh, the great, is there aspect or not in Greek? Uh, okay, okay, I'll get away from dorkdom now. But it's more the move of this happened once, the result is this ongoing action of Christ living in the power of God. All right. So, and but I mean, what is so with with those thoughts of, of aspect? Just that back and forth that he's crucified in weakness, lives in the power of God. Then we too we're weak in him, but in dealing with you we live. I mean, keep like how does that that back and forth that contrast work? So, so just as Christ uh, was crucified for us that we may live, and then the we here Paul's referring to himself is that we are weak in that we have sacrificed everything. Uh, Paul is. Oh, really following the footsteps of Christ, uh, frankly, is following the, follow, following the footsteps of Moses, that he has sacrificed everything in the weakness. And the suffering that has come, most of Paul's, su- most of Paul's sufferings have been because of the Corinthians, uh, because of his ministry. He has been suffering on behalf of them. And that's this notion of, oh, I've, oh, I've suffered on behalf of you with the result that you may live yeah. in the power of God. Yeah. And we, we've seen that throughout this epistle. What When Paul has endured the suffering, it's for the sake of the comfort of the Corinthians, for their benefit. And here, too, even in the weakness in which he is living with Christ, the crucified one, that is still living in the power of God for the sake of the Corinthians, also living in that power of God in that resurrection. We're going to keep looking at this text more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to... Dr. Ryan Teeth this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. 
LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, February 2nd. We are studying 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 14, with the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. He is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, prior to the break, we left off with now getting to verse 5 of our text, where Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. This thought of testing yourselves comes up several times in this paragraph. What's Paul getting at now? Oh, and this is the move, we already talked about this earlier, how Paul has now shifted the burden of proof. Uh, okay, you've been, you've been claiming I'm not an apostle. You've been claiming I'm a, 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 yeah, a lousy apostle, uh, even perhaps even not even a Christian, if, depending how far you want to push that. And his response is, instead of you, me trying to prove myself, you better prove yourselves as, as legitimate apostles. And that imperative there of examine yourselves now set oh now shifts the burden uh the content of in the faith here probably is, it should de- de- describe the content of the faith so prove that you are actually truly following the content of christ's mm-hmm. message and he's already charged them in the previous verse that if you deny uh, christ's crucifixion uh you deny a need for forgiveness so that's already been sort of in the background in, in four and now he just flat out says, you make your case. I've been making mine now for 12 chapters. Mm-hmm. It, it's your turn. And this idea of testing so and in, in the thought themselves. of seeing whether you are in the faith then, to, to examine the, the doctrine that is being taught rather than the, perhaps the sincerity of, of the belief, but it is about the, the doctrine that's the, the test as to whether they're in or not? Yeah, the issue has always been in this—oh, so much of this, got, uh, this epistle has been— a matter of credibility. So, oh yeah, are you credible or not? So it hasn't been, uh, nobody's going to question Paul being sincere. Uh, and you could make the case nobody would be questioning his opponents. But are they actually in accordance with the content of faith, as yeah. opposed to yeah. sincerity here? And he, he, and he's already taken them to task over sexual sins and other issues throughout mm-hmm. this epistle. So yeah, and we've we've talked a little bit about that in previous episodes with this. You know, what what things are the Corinthians willing to bear with? And it seems that they they're willing to bear with the false doctrine of these super apostles, uh, while not being willing to bear with the the weaknesses of Paul. They've got it backwards. They should bear with the weaknesses of Paul and not bear with any false doctrine. Yeah, and then he makes that move, and so okay, so he puts them on the defensive, and then uh, the tail end, the right at the very end of verse five, he's bitingly sarcastic. Uh, the line, unless indeed you fail to meet the test, okay, prove yourselves, unless you don't think yeah. you're going to do it. He is just thrown down the gauntlet. I mean, it just bitingly so sarcastic. So, what about that that phrase then in the middle of that? Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? How does that factor into this matter of testing themselves? Oh, it's been the big charge here. He said, "Oh, Christ is working in me because Christ works in weakness." You need to prove that Christ is working in mm. in you. Mm. 
Talk a little bit more about Christ working in us. I, that's not the the most. That's not the way that Lutherans talk. I think the most often that that Christ works in us. We talk a lot about Christ's work outside of us. Extra nos is the Latin, but but this is a way that Scripture speaks. So so talk a little bit more about the right way to what Paul's saying. The right way to talk that way. And uh, this is going to sound almost. It's going to sound almost too obvious, or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, for Christ to work in us is that is how we function as Christ's messengers and Christ's ambassadors. Uh, because the issue of apostolic authority has been has really been pervasive throughout this entire epistle. Oh, is Christ are you Christ's messenger, true messenger or not? That's been the big debate throughout this epistle. And for us to see it in our own lives, are we the ones who are actually oh bringing faithfully this message to others without making it about ourselves. Yeah. Well, and this, I suppose, even says a little bit more than that, not only that Jesus Christ is working in us, but that he is in us. Talk a little bit about, I mean, we are, what, temples of, of the, the Holy Spirit, temples of, of the Lord in Christ. Uh, talk about that reality, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those cute little moments as a pastor when people ask who Jesus is and they point to the guy in the alb. It, which is one of those adorable moments. Uh, kids, kids get the faith far better than those of us with too many degrees do at times. Is that? Oh, and the reason a kid will say it. One, oh, let's be honest. Uh, most of us don't wear albs around town, so it's a little odd. So a lot of this guy's dressed a little funny. But it's the but the child perhaps recognizes that the way they hear Jesus' message is Jesus working through Jesus, you know, working through, working in the life of the pastor, which is, uh, talk about a scary responsibility. Well, and I, I think there. in verse in verse 5, the, that Jesus Christ is in you would not only refer to the pastors, though, right, but also to the Corinthians? Of course, yeah, I, yeah, oh, definitely. Because we, we, we are all Christ, well, Christ is in us, we are, we are always, we are Christ's witnesses, uh, we are the ones who are participants in both Christ's mm. death and resurrection. So then, with this thought of being tested, Paul's challenged them to test themselves, to examine the faith that is being taught, to see whether or not it is Jesus Christ crucified, who now is in them, If unless they fail to meet the test. He challenged them pretty strongly. And then he, he brings himself back up into ver- in verse 6. I hope you will you'll find out that we have not failed the test. Yeah, so he makes that move, that nice little sarcastic remark at the t- tail, tail end of five. Because, uh, of course, his hearers will say, there's no way we're going to... There's Oh, we will most certainly pass it. The idea of not passing, it's unthinkable. So, of course, we're going to pass. And then he now makes the move of, okay, so if you approve of yourselves because of who Christ is, you now need to approve of me. Because if you if you truly know yeah. who Jesus is, so then in verse seven, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Help us to. to that's a. There's a lot there, Doctor Teets. Help us to untangle that. Oh man, alive is there ever? Because uh, we move into the. Oh. Because the danger of Paul defending his authority is that he actually that his hearers and even perhaps Paul um, could actually forget the purpose of this defense. Uh, the purpose of this defense isn't because Paul Paul's ego is 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 hurt here. Uh, 
instead, he gets into the fundamental reason behind this. Uh, he, the reason isn't so much that, oh, and that's where, oh, to use the uh, ESV, the nice little dash there. Not that we may appear to have met the test. He doesn't, the whole point of this isn't that he wants to wants the people to think great of him. No, the whole result of this is he actually wants them to to live in accordance with the faith that he passed that he gave to them and live in accordance with this message. All right, so we again, we pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed for verse eight, we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. Yeah, this Paul has now officially gotten himself away from any sort of charge that he mm-hmm. that his feelings are hurt. Uh, this isn't okay. Well, it, it, okay, I'm I'm tired of people uh, bashing me. Tired of people taking my name in vain. No, uh, and it starts out with a nice gar, which means it's explaining the gar uh, Greek for for uh, the reason he's doing this isn't because of his ego. It's because of Oh, that he, because of the truth that he's proclaiming. Yeah. And this is a, I mean, it's a fine line that I suppose Paul's been been walking throughout this epistle. Certainly a fine line for pastors today to to speak about the authority, the office, but not make, it's not, a, that's not about themselves. This, none of this is about Paul as an individual. Uh, rather, it's about the one that Paul is proclaiming. And, and he wants, he wants them to know that his apostolic office is, legitimate so that they would put their trust in the message that he's proclaiming and in the one he's proclaiming. Similarly for pastors, it is important that we know that those pastors who are called to our congregations are legitimately in that office, not for their own egos so that they get some sort of position of power, but rather that we would have greater confidence in the message that they proclaim and in the one that they are proclaiming. Yeah, and that's where Paul is just a wonderful... He really yeah. keep, it keeps us honest, both as congregation members and as pastors. Uh, the, the, the danger always, and we've talked about this now a couple times in our time together, the danger of turning the pastor into some sort of charismatic leader. Mm-hmm. Into, and even in the use of pastoral authority, which uh, is something that is absolutely scary at times, is that the danger becomes, ooh, it's actually mm-hmm. kind of fun to be powerful. I mean to quote what it's good to be oh it's good to be king, uh, no and that's a danger, in that, uh, that power can serve our selfish interests, and how can we faithfully use exercise authority because Christ has placed us yeah. as pastors in these settings, um, without actually, uh, turning it into some way of yeah. serving our own self interests. And for our and for congregation members to be able to appreciate your pastor as uh, caring for you, and that's that's a really tough line. The old stereotype of hair pastor, uh, which is generally not an affectionate term, by the way. Hair pastor means the heavy-handed guy who thinks he's who's utterly in charge, as opposed to a pastor who is going to do what's best for you. But but with a element of with yeah. but with yeah. I mean the only you know we, you talk about pastoral authority, the only pastoral authority that there is 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 the word of God, which is not the the pastor's authority at all. It's simply the authority of God in the pastor's mouth. And so you know there, yeah the, that 
stereotype of, of hair pastor that the, the pastor just gets his way, certainly a danger for the pastor to, to watch out for. At the same time, where the pastor speaks the Word of God, and he does so without bending, he does so not, not because he is hair pastor, but because he's under someone else's authority. He's under orders, and he hasn't been authorized to bend that. And so some, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, there's the danger for the pastor certainly to watch out for. There's also the danger for, for a congregation to, oh, he's just being, he's just being domineering, when in fact he's, he's really trying to just stick with the orders that he's been given, and he knows he can't go against those orders because he doesn't have that authority. Yeah, and I mean, this comes down to the uh, pet expression of my Greek pro- professor way back at Concordia Seward, Professor Block. The line they use throughout class is, mm-hmm. let it stand intentioned. And being able to manage yeah. that tension. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, the authority is is God's, and and where His authority is is there. That's that's the only authority the pastor really has, for the sake of the congregation. And then verse verse nine. Then Paul says, "We are glad when we are weak and you are strong, because we're we're praying for your restoration." There, man, that's a fantastic example of Paul's pastor. Oh, yeah, and it goes back to chapter 10, verse 1 in 2 Corinthians, where where it's been his gentleness in Christ, which has actually motivated him throughout this. Yeah, our, our weakness yeah. is yeah, for that, That'd sake. be a good verse for the laying on of hands at ordination, 2 Corinthians 13, 9. Oh, man. I may have to... Yeah, okay, I'm going to have to steal that one the next ordination I do. Yeah, you're right. That is actually... Yeah, that never occurred to me. That is... That'd be absolutely yeah, perfect. Yeah, this is, yeah, the pastor is there and in weakness for the strength of the people to stay strong in Christ and for the sake of their restoration. And maybe we can attach that also to the, the thought of the ministry of reconciliation back in chapter 5 and 6. This is, this is the point of the pastoral office. And two, that not only, you know, again, the, the point of the pastor being weak for the sake of the congregation's strength, but that this is, this is happening in the prayers of the pastor. This, too, is an important part of the pastoral ministry, that he would be praying for those he serves. Yeah, and and that a pastor's sacrifices matter, and that's where it comes down to weakness. And this is where Paul talking about his sufferings throughout has just been absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, yeah, where the pastor. I mean, I, uh, if you told me I would end up in Northeast Indiana, two and a half hours away from where I grew up, uh, I still still trying to figure this one out. To be honest with you, but. Uh, but the oh, okay, uh, I've moved here, and I never th- because because the Holy Spirit called right. me to this spot. And many of us have our moving stories. So I never thought I'd end up in these spots. And let me tell you, Northeast Indiana is not everywhere right. I anticipated. Yeah. Uh, the Holy Spirit, the the call yeah. is a very odd thing. Uh, thankful I'm here, but man alive, still it's Northeast Indiana. <laughs> I like mountains. Uh, we have horizon. Uh, but that there is the aspect of the pastor going where he is sent, and being able to yeah make those moves yeah and make those that's right and, and Paul and and for us to yeah and for us to see our pastor sure yeah and Paul's been an sake. example of that in this epistle so has Titus as well he's he's been a, mentioned by Paul a couple times in connection with the gift and and his ministering among the Corinthians so you see a couple of examples here within this epistle of that that very thing. Now, in verse 10, uh, Paul comes back to kind of what we were talking about, why he's writing these things now, so that when he gets there, he, he can have a more pleasant visit, a more joyful visit. And here he, he talks specifically about the way that he would use his authority. Uh, take us into that, 
that, especially that last part of verse 10. Yeah. This is where Paul is so much more, is wonderfully accessible. Uh, this is the final final verse of the letter proper. We'll get into the greetings and uh, the final, what, 11, 12, 13, and 14. Is that, oh, it's it's his final bit before he goes into those greetings. So he restates his thesis statement of the entire, of the entire epistle. The whole point of this epistle, by, and by the way, it's kind of in the category of, if you haven't figured it out, let me tell you exactly what I've been talking about for the past 12, now 13 chapters is that the whole goal of this has been reconciliation. Uh, he's been all, he's had to fight all these different battles. He's gone after his opponents. We just saw how he put his uh, super apostles on the defensive by forcing them to oh, prove that they are truly the ones who are in the faith, the ones who are in accordance with the content of the faith. So now his whole goal of this is, I want to be on good terms with you before I come back. And this idea of, okay, his authority can be both for uh, building up and tearing down, which is a nice allusion to Jeremiah 1, by the way. Jeremiah's call does the same thing. Um, Is that, yeah, his goal here, I don't make me, I really don't want to, oh, I want peace. I want peace. I want a relationship with you. I care about you. So I, and please listen to this letter so I don't have to have this, so, so that we can be on good terms yeah, when I yeah. come. Yeah, so they can use that authority for building up and not for tearing down. That is that is the Paul's goal when he comes to make this next visit to the Corinthians. Now, in, in verse 11, you, you do see him start to to wrap things up, as he often does. And I, we'll, we'll talk about it. One thing I, I noticed just as I was reading it, Dr. Teets, is that we don't have any mentions of any particular people at this point in the epistle, which... I don't know all of his epistles well enough to say with confidence, but it seems he almost always names somebody particular at the end, and, and here he, he really doesn't. It just struck me as, yeah. No, he's keep, he, seems to be, yeah, he seems to be keeping it pretty yeah. broad here. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know I, if there's I, a reason yeah. for that or not. It's just, it, just the way this one partic- it goes. So there's, there's not, you know, we, we don't find too much else out about. We've mentioned Titus several times, uh, but it, it's just not a part of these closing greetings. So... Verse 11, he, yeah. he, this, this often happens, where finally, brothers, we have rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Just a successive final instructions. Take us into that verse. We, we got a nice little staccato series. These are his final parting shots. Uh, by the way, uh, previous verse, here's the point of it. And he, oh, let me just make sure, don't we hit right. these other points one last time? So the uh, n- uh, notion of oh aim for restoration being absolutely key, uh, uh, providing comfort for one another, uh, and uh, comfort there has the sense of as as a relational term, it's a uh, uh, being able to oh, build each other up as opposed to these battles that he's been caught in the middle of, and he's been the object of. Uh, agree with one another. Uh, the notion of fellowship. Yeah. Well, you, you skipped over yeah. rejoice. Did talk... <laughs> Oh man, alive for crying out loud! I, I how, how dare I miss the? Oh, yeah, I I, I, I happened to look at our text. I managed to forget the word rejoice. Oh man, alive! That was a. Uh, I I could blame blame it on the fact that since I do Hebrew most that's of the time, right. I read yeah, the you were reading right to left. But in I don't that know case. if that's going to help me here. <laughs> 
Right. Uh, it's. I mean, I, I. I don't think that would work since I'm looking at a electronic <laughs> Greek text right now. Uh, so 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 much for my excuse. No. Uh, yeah. For crying out loud, rejoice is the biggest part there. It's and rejoicing in suffering and rejoicing in what yeah. Christ has done for you. When Paul talks about rejoicing, it's not uh, don't worry, be happy. No, it's uh, rejoice. It is the experience of knowing you're forgiven because of what Christ has done for you. And that's what mm-hmm. starts out everything. And then he can move on to the idea of uh, restoration. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the one that you, you stopped at earlier, the the as it's translated in English, uh, agree with one another or be of be of the same mind. That takes us all the way back again to the first yeah. part of the first epistle, where there's these divisions within the Corinthian church, and it, you, I mean, man, when you start to put those things together, you really see reconciliation as a theme, not only in this epistle but even going back into the first as well. Yeah, both of these epistles have been fraught with so many different conflicts over, and so many different factions. Um, whether or not uh, in terms of power, in terms of social dynamics, there have been plenty of different yeah. options here. But being able to be one-minded in the faith, and how, and because of that, it translates to yeah. how you Well, so then there's the live, the live in peace that follows right after agreeing with one another, being of one mind. Yeah, and that word peace there is, there's your uh, super loaded term. Uh, peace in the uh, Bible is never an absence uh he's not he's not urging them to yeah. be minnesota nice which means we all get along because we don't because we don't uh because we avoid conflict uh let's be honest paul uh you can accuse paul of a lot of things so being a being conflict avoidant can't really accuse him of that here instead it's not this uh level of okay we're all gonna just uh we're all gonna stare at each other and not stir the pot no whenever we deal with peace uh, peace is a uh, restored yeah, relationship. Yeah. Well, it, and so then that comes from God, right? So the very next thing, the God of love and peace will be with you. So this this idea of living in peace is accomplished when the God of peace is with you. Right. So when Jesus makes his resurrection appearances, and it's always, what, arene su, uh, peace be with you. I probably butchered the pronoun there, but uh, peace be with you. Uh, it's... It is a, he's not saying, uh, don't panic, it's me. Right. There is that element. But he's also proclaiming the, our relationship is restored. You are, and, and it's far bigger than simply don't yeah. panic. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because it, he's, you have that peace because he's there. It's striking how many times after his resurrection, that is the word he speaks is a peace. And the way that that word shows up still in our worship services, you know, the, the peace of the Lord that is there when, when he's on the altar with his body and his blood for you to eat and to drink, and the peace that comes in the benediction. Over and over, this peace comes from God. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, think about how often we use that word uh, peace in our, in our liturgy, yeah. like what you just brought up. Yeah, it's not a—it's uh, very easy for us to take it as, oh, everything's fine because nobody's saying anything. That's never what peace means. Instead, whenever peace is proclaimed, it is— uh, our, our unity with Christ, our restored relationship with Christ, which, which leads to restored mm-hmm. relationships yeah. with one yeah. another. Well, and then, so then this thought of, you know, again, you live in peace with each other because the God of love and peace is with you. Then verse 12, greet one another. Here it's called a holy kiss. I think elsewhere it's called a kiss of peace, I think. Yeah, uh, we always have to, every, there's all kinds of speculation on what exactly this liturgical ritual is. 
couple commentaries I was consulting had, or like, oh, maybe this, and we won't get into any details, although depending where you are in the country, in the Northeast, Holy Kiss may be a little bit more prevalent, but that's only the weird greetings on Long Island. I, but uh, but what exactly it okay so uh, hearers I'm a Midwesterner uh, handshake is good enough for me uh, but this idea of some sort of concrete gesture that demonstrates mm, unity yeah. all right so and, and uh, some sort of warm fellowship uh, that's being okay and then and then we do have in verse 13 all the saints greet you so this is not unusual we just don't have anybody named particularly the greeting from the saints. And then verse 14, he, he concludes with a Trinitarian benediction that's still used in many worship services in our liturgies today. Uh, take us into that final that final verse. Yeah, I'm right now having flashbacks to every class I teach because uh, students, who, I, they get the ire of the professor if they start packing up before they hear these. Here, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Like, yeah, we have a close of the Lord's blessing yet. Uh, you do not want the, yeah, that's the annoyed, that's the annoyed professor talking uh, yeah, I mean we we see this throughout. It is it he ends everything by by proclaiming God's name over them that was given to them at their baptism, and that's the beauty of it, the grace. So what God did has done for them, and yeah, it's it's the right way to end a book that has been very tenuous in terms of the conflicts. So it all comes down to ultimately their identity that is that was given to them when the triune name was proclaimed over them at yeah, their baptisms. Yeah. So there's there's the wrapping up of this correspondence with the Corinthians as we have it in the New Testament. With about a minute here, Doctor Teets, help us to wrap things up on on this chapter on on Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians and what we take from it as Christians today. Oh, Second Corinthians, First Corinthians. You put these two together, they are a wild ride to say the least. Uh, conflicts abound, uh, but in all of this, uh, Paul, even when he has to tell people what they don't want to hear, is working towards the end, working to the goal of making of making sure of reconciling them both with Jesus and with each other. And in these final words, we had a lot of going back and forth. He shifts the burden of proof. You prove yourselves, but it really comes down to ultimately to verse ten. The whole goal of this letter is that he doesn't have to come, that when he visits them, he can visit them as a pastor in a restored relationship. Uh, you can hear how Paul's heart has been breaking really throughout this. And he has his final shots, and then it's, and and he entrusts them to God with his final benediction. Yeah. And what a, what a place for the pastor Paul to end, entrusting his people to God's grace in Jesus Christ, the grace that is theirs in baptism into the triune name of God. The Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and the Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He has been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. Dr. Teets, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, always fun to be able to join you on some of these I am your adventures. host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Next week, we are starting a study on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Please join us next Monday to go through that wonderful epistle over the next couple weeks. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.